Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, that most malevolent month is nearly upon us. I kind of love the crispness of the season, especially at the start of October. The days are decently warm still, but that cool breeze sends shivers down my spine every time the sun dips below the horizon. There's a certain smell in the air in October, too and it hits me hard in the nostalgia. Autumn's been my favorite season, and October my favorite month, for as long as I can remember. Halloween aside, it just seems to ooze creepiness. I love evening walks in October especially. The shadows are longer. Empty buildings seem a little more occupied. The sound of rustling leaves on the breeze muffles... Is that footsteps? Until you stop and listen, and they're gone. This is also the time of year I notice I feel the most inspired. It puts me in a reading, writing, and listening kind of mood. It also puts me in a mood for seeking out dark and mysterious artworks. 
and I've been doing a little of just that. Kicking off our creepy season for patrons, we've got a fresh batch of Tales to Terrify swag coming your way. I've been working with Carly Jessup at Jessup's General Store again this fall to craft a concoction of dark designs and eerie artwork to send your way. It's still in the works, but I'll keep you posted. If you're curious for yourself, though, check out Jessup's General Store for all of the occult-inspired goodness you can handle. Carly does an amazing job, and I love her artwork so much. I'm sure you will, too. If you don't want to miss out on this next swag pack, there's still time to sign up. Patreon.com slash Tales to Terrify. I have a few other overdue items to send out to patrons, too. So if you're a supporter who's waiting, I apologize and I promise the goodies will be flying your way soon. Lastly, before we dive in, I can officially let you know that submissions will remain open until the end of October. It felt a bit like a travesty to close them before the most horror-inspiring season really kicks off, so make sure you don't let us down. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions. Scare up something horrible for us, would you? We have two tales for you this evening, the first of which comes from Virginia Campen. Virginia Campen lives in an overgrown corner of North Carolina and writes by the light of fireflies and swamp gas. Her fiction has appeared in venues including Metamorphosis, Analog, and Daily Science Fiction. This is her first visit to Tales to Terrify. Children of the Night, join me for Virginia Campen's Mandible Temporalis, a Tales to Terrify original. Mark pushed his chair away from the table. Jenna, I know your damn jaw hurts. I'm sick of... He took a deep breath and stood up. I'm going out for a walk. Don't wait up. The front door slammed as I tipped out a dose of naproxen from the jumbo-sized bottle that lived on the kitchen table. A half-eaten pork chop sat on my dinner plate. I should have stuck to the mashed potato and squash. My teeth ached, the pain in my jaw pulsed and flared. I retreated to the couch with my head wrapped in an ice pack, where I watched TV and hoped for sleep, wondering what I had done to deserve such pain. Mark shook me awake after midnight. Jenna, I found a specialist for you. He smelled of cigar smoke and scotch and another scent I couldn't place. Astringent and unsettling. I fumbled for the remote and clicked off the TV. Where were you? Stopped for a drink. Some crazy new 
bar done up like an old-fashioned saloon. Ran into this guy, this doctor. Convinced him to see you. Made a special appointment for tomorrow. Mark fumbled in his pocket and placed a business card on the coffee table, then lurched off toward the bedroom. He's a bone guy, Mark said at breakfast, chewing a cold slice of pizza while I slurped soft-boiled eggs. A bone dentist. He's mostly into research. Doesn't see many patients. I had to really sell him on you. I stared at the business card. Jeremiah Smith. D-D-O-O-E-D-P-H-D. An unfamiliar address scribbled in pencil on the back. What will it cost? Don't you worry about that. I worked out a deal. Mark smiled, flashing his beautiful, naturally straight, blindingly white teeth. He'd never worn braces, never had a cavity, and I hated him for it. I'd spent thousands on mouth guards and physical therapy, even tried hypnosis. I'd replaced my amalgam fillings with porcelain at the urgent of a naturopath, removed my back molars, upper and lower, on the advice of a dentist. Nothing helped. I'd used all my sick days at work and ate ibuprofen like candy. Mark whistled as we left the apartment that morning. In the evening, we drove to Dr. Smith's office, a narrow storefront in a strip mall, wedged between a nail salon and a chiropractor. Black lettering on the door spelled out Dental Osteology. It looks closed, I said. It's a special appointment, just for you. He'll be there. The waiting room contained a small table flanked by two straight-backed chairs. No magazines, no pictures on the walls, only a dusty artificial ficus tree. A frosted glass window, the kind that hides a receptionist, glowed with a greenish light. A shadow moved behind the glass. Hello? I rapped on the window. We're here for Dr. Smith? The shadow paused, wavered, and disappeared. A moment later a door, half hidden behind the ficus tree, swung open. How had I not noticed it? The dark wood and heavy brass hardware contrasted with the rest of the architecture, the flimsy acoustic ceiling tiles and grey industrial carpeting. The man in the doorway was tall, bearded, dressed in dark pants and a white lab coat. You are the Millers, he said, stating it as fact. Mark grinned like a fanboy meeting a celebrity. Dr. Smith, it's so good to see you again. This is my wife, Jenna, the one with all the problems. The doctor held out his hand and I automatically took it, cool and dry with a curious powdery feel. I was seized with the need to see his teeth. Can't trust a dentist with bad teeth. Smith stepped aside and gestured inviting me into an office vastly out of proportion to typical strip mall dimensions. It smelled of pipe tobacco and cinnamon. Wall sconces cast a gentle light over built-in bookcases that held leather-bound books, porcelain bowls, bottles of vari-coloured glass, and jawbones. Jawbones of animals from tiny rodents to long-snouted predators and assorted primates. 
disarticulated grins like Alice's Cheshire cat. I suppressed a giggle. There was so much to look at, such a jumble. I couldn't focus on any single item. Everything appeared fuzzy around the edges, haloed by the soft yellow light. Smith placed his hand on the small of my back and guided me, past a massive desk and out a second door, into a narrow beige hallway. The buzz of fluorescent lighting, the smell of antiseptic, was like an unwelcome slap in the face. In a cramped exam room, I lowered myself into the dental chair. There was a hum as it reclined. Then Smith loomed over me. A little nitrous oxide, to relax you, he said, placing a small transparent mask connected to rubbery white tubes on my nose. How does that feel? Too loose and you don't get the full benefit. Too tight, well, that's not good either. Gas hissed through the tubing. One breath. Two breaths. The room felt warmer, my limbs heavy. I smelled cinnamon. Dr. Smith sat beside me on a stool, smiling, finally showing his teeth. Good teeth, sturdy and heavy, gleaming like ivory. I will have to manipulate your jaw during treatment, he said, and this may cause some slight pain. The word treatment startled me. I'd assumed this was an examination, an initial assessment. I tried to sit up, struggling against the slope of the chair. Relax. Smith's voice sounded far away. He gently pressed me back into the chair. The hissing increased. He removed a gold pocket watch from his vest and consulted it. It will be fine, I thought, surrendering to the gas. I am safe and warm, and my pain is now only a dull ache, and I could stay here forever. My head lolled on the padded headrest. A skeleton hung in the corner, suspended from the ceiling. It wasn't grinning at me like the cartoon Halloween decorations or Day of the Dead sugar skulls. Why so sad? I mumbled. You can tell me. I can keep a secret. It clicked its teeth once but remained silent. Smith was talking. Did you know, my dear, that dentists were the first to use nitrous during surgery? Around 1840 for extractions. Then ether and chloroform came along and, oh, so many advancements in pain relief. He snapped the watch shut and tucked it away. That's enough nitrous. He held up a different mask, this one bulkier, made of leather and canvas and shiny metal, big enough to cover both my nose and mouth. He deftly switched out the masks. Good, good, he murmured. A deep breath now, if you please. A single inhalation and every trace of pain vanished replaced by the glorious and absolute certainty that Dr. Smith would help me. A warm, golden light suffused the room. Smith began tapping insistently on my jaw, below my right ear. A memory of pain coalesced under his fingertip, and I reflexively jerked away. Easy, 
he crooned, patting my arm. A pressure across my hips, a wide band being drawn tight, a strap round my left wrist, cinching it to the armrest. The skeleton rattled nervously on its chain, sending out a warning. I shook my head, willing my right hand upward and clawing the mask off. I gulped air and kicked my legs, trying to get blood flowing, trying to clear my head. That's not nitrous, I gasped. Dr. Smith nodded. It is my own formulation, developed when I was studying in Boston. I call it lethian. Better than chloroform or ether, yet it has been forgotten by the medical establishment. He grabbed my right wrist and forced it down. Relax, Miss Miller. The restraints are to keep you secure during the procedure. You will feel almost nothing. He pulled a rolling metal tray to his side. A large hypodermic syringe made of steel and glass rested in the centre, surrounded by scalpels and pliers, clamps and curved needles, large shears and delicate scissors. In the morning you will wake up and remember little of this night, Smith said. It is a surprisingly simple procedure. Detach the masseter and medial pterygoid muscles from the ramus. He tapped here and there on my face. Disarticulate the condylese, mobilize the mandible, resect the muscles. In the corner, the skeleton shivered. In other words, remove your lower jaw, it said. I laughed, a single bark of disbelief. Smith patted my hand. Rest assured, I'll close the wound in a manner that provides a semblance of a face. He was serious. Quite serious, the skeleton agreed. I began panting, frantic to expel the last traces of Smith's gas. My tongue felt thick and rubbery. You, you can't. We'll go to the police. Mark is a witness. They'll find you. Oh, I doubt that. They never have. Not in all the years I've been travelling. He spoke calmly, focused on trying to roll up the tight-fitting sleeve of my shirt. We struck a deal, your husband and me. My payment will start him on his new life in Costa Rica. Or perhaps it was Belize. I have no interest in such sordid escapades. He sighed and selected a scalpel from the tray, using it to slice my shirt sleeve from shoulder to wrist. Then he raised the syringe, the needle tipped with a quivering drop of liquid. Wait, I croaked. You don't want my jaw. He leaned forward, lips brushing my ear. Of course I do, he purred. The mandible is the most beautiful of human bones, a curve of ivory bejeweled with teeth like a royal coronet. No, I repeated more forcefully, you don't want my jaw, my teeth, my back molars, they're gone. I have lots of fillings. Smith narrowed his eyes, as if expecting a trick. I opened my mouth as wide as possible and he peered inside, then recoiled with disgust, dropping the syringe to the floor. Your husband? He spit out the words. Your husband assured me your teeth were pristine, said the pain was all in your head. 
He clenched his fists and worked his fingers. A child denied candy from a jar just out of reach. My husband is a liar and a cheat. I chose my next words carefully. He cannot understand my pain. He is either perfect. Pristine. Dr. Smith pursed his lips and gazed at the skeleton. His fists relaxed. I don't care if I ever see Mark again, I continued. He has no real friends. His family rarely calls. If he sent a text to me tonight about needing space, if a bus ticket to New York showed up on his credit card and he disappeared, well, no one would worry. Not for a long while. Smith smoothed the lapels of his white coat. He is a scoundrel, he declared and bent to pick up the hypodermic. When he left the room, I thrashed and pulled, managing to wrench my right arm free of the restraint. Smith returned as I scrabbled at the buckles on my left. Be still, he commanded, placing Mark's wallet, key fob and cell phone in my lap. He took a step back and waited until I met his eyes. Do we have an understanding? When I nodded, he held up one more item, a silver money clip holding a stack of bills, the paper glowing a curious shade of orange. I am an honourable man. I always pay for my specimens. The amount I promised Mr. Miller is yours now. Mark is gone. So is Smith's office. At the strip mall, Nothing separates the nail salon from the chiropractor. The money remains. The only proof I have. Those funny-coloured bills are United States gold certificates from the late 1800s, first printed in dark yellow ink, now aged to a rich orange. No longer legal tender, but desired by collectors who pay a hundred times, a thousand times the face value. I sell a few every month. I still have the pain, still spend nights on the couch, my face buttressed by ice packs or wrapped in heating pads. It feels like penance now, rather than punishment. And every day, it hurts a little less. That was Virginia Campen's Mandible Temporalis, as read by Alexandra Elroy. Alexandra is a bilingual voice actress and writer who lurks by the shallow polders of the Netherlands, waiting for her next boat of inspiration. She loves everything to do with stories, especially creative and playful horror. Her favorite voices to do are witches, goblins, and crazy computers. Things she brags about are her children, her stories, her Japanese BA, and her podcast on UK culture, One Cup of Perfect Tea. Check it out. Thank you, Alexandra. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Our second tale tonight is a classic from H.P. Lovecraft. Howard Phillips Lovecraft was an American writer of weird, science, fantasy, and horror fiction. He is best known for his creation of the Cthulhu mythos. Born in Providence, Rhode Island, Lovecraft spent most of his life in New England. His literary corpus is based around the idea of cosmicism, a personal philosophy and the main theme of his fiction that posits that humanity is an insignificant part of the cosmos and could be swept away at any moment. Lovecraft was never able to support himself from earnings as an author and editor. He was virtually unknown during his lifetime and was almost exclusively published in pulp magazines before his death. A scholarly revival of his work began in the 70s, and he is now regarded as one of the most significant 20th century authors of supernatural horror fiction. Listen with me, children of the night, to H.P. Lovecraft's the Picture in the House, a classic first published in the July 1921 issue of The National Amateur. Searchers after horror haunt strange far places. For them are the catacombs of Ptolemaeus and the carven mausolea of the nightmare countries. They climb to the moonlit towers of ruined Rhine castles and falter down black cobwebbed streets beneath the scattered stones of forgotten cities in Asia. The haunted wood and the desolate mountain are their shrines, and they linger around the sinister monoliths on uninhabited islands. But 
the true epicure in the terrible, to whom a new thrill of unutterable ghastliness is the chief end and justification of existence, esteems most of all the ancient lonely farmhouses of backwoods New England, for there the dark elements of strength, solitude, grotesqueness and ignorance combine to form the perfection of the hideous. Most horrible of all sights are the little unpainted wooden houses, remote from travelled ways, usually squatted upon some damp grassy slope, or leaning against some gigantic outcropping of rock. Two hundred years and more they have leaned or squatted there, while the vines have crawled and the trees have swelled and spread. They're almost hidden now in lawless luxuriances of green and guardian shrouds of shadow but the small-paned windows still stare shockingly, as if blinking through a lethal stupor which wards off madness by dulling the memory of unutterable things. In such houses have dwelt generations of strange people whose like the world has never seen. Seized with a gloomy and fanatical belief which exiled them from their kind, their ancestors soared to the wilderness for freedom. There, the scions of a conquering race indeed flourished free from the restrictions of their fellows, but cowered in an appalling slavery to the dismal phantasms of their own mind. Divorced from the enlightenment of civilization, the strength of these Puritans turned into singular channels, and in their isolation, morbid self-repression, and struggle for life with relentless nature, there came to them dark, furtive traits from the prehistoric depths of their cold northern heritage. By necessity practical, and by philosophy stern, these folk were not beautiful in their sins. Erring as all mortals must, they were forced by their rigid code to seek concealment above all else so that they came to use less and less taste in what they concealed. Only the silent, sleepy, staring houses in the backwoods can tell all that has lain hidden since the early days, and they are not communicative, being loath to shake off the drowsiness which helps them forget. Sometimes one feels that it would be merciful to tear down these houses, for they must often dream. It was to a time-battered edifice of this description that I was driven one afternoon in November 1896 by a rain of such chilling copiousness that any shelter was preferable to exposure. I had been travelling for some time amongst the people of the Miskatonic Valley in quest of certain genealogical data, and from the remote, devious and problematical nature of my course, had deemed it convenient to employ a bicycle, despite the lateness of the season. Now I found myself upon an apparently abandoned road which I had chosen as the shortest cut to Arkham. Overtaken by the storm at a point far from any town, and confronted with no refuge save the antique and repellent wooden building which blinked with bleared windows from between two leafless elms near the foot of a rocky hill. Distant though it was from the remnant of a road, the house nonetheless impressed me unfavourably 
the very moment I espied it. Honest, wholesome structures do not stare at travellers so slyly and hauntingly, and in my genealogical researches I had encountered legends of a century before which biased me against places of this kind. Yet the force of the elements was such as to overcome my scruples, and I did not hesitate to wheel my machine up the weedy rise to the closed door, which seemed at once so suggestive and secretive. I had somehow taken it for granted that the house was abandoned. Yet as I approached it, I was not so sure, for though the walks were indeed overgrown with weeds, they seemed to retain their nature a little too well to argue against complete desertion. Therefore, instead of trying the door, I knocked, feeling as I did so a trepidation I could scarcely explain. As I waited on the rough, mossy rock which served as a doorstep, I glanced at the neighbouring windows and the panes of the transom above me, and noticed that although old, rattling and almost opaque with dirt, they were not broken. The building then must still be inhabited, despite its isolation and general neglect. However, my rapping evoked no response, so after repeating the summons I tried the rusty latch and found the door unfastened. Inside was a little vestibule with walls from which the plaster was falling, and through the doorway came a faint but peculiarly hateful odour. I entered, carrying my bicycle, and closed the door behind me. Ahead rose a narrow staircase, flanked by a small door probably leading to the cellar, while to the left and right were closed doors leading to rooms on the ground floor. Leaning my cycle against the wall, I opened the door at the left and crossed into a small, low-ceilinged chamber but dimly lighted by its two dusty windows and furnished in the barest and most primitive possible way. It appeared to be a kind of sitting room, for it had a table and several chairs and an immense fireplace above which tick an antique clock on a mantel. Books and papers were very few, and in the prevailing gloom I could not readily discern the titles. What interested me was the uniform air of archaism as displayed in every visible detail. Most of the houses in this region I had found rich in relics of the past, but here the antiquity was curiously complete, for in all the room I could not discover a single article of definitely post-revolutionary date. Had the furnishings been less humble, the place would have been a collector's paradise. As I surveyed this quaint apartment, I felt an increase in that aversion first excited by the bleak exterior of the house. Just what it was that I feared or loathed, I could by no means define. But something in the whole atmosphere seemed redolent of unhallowed age, of unpleasant crudeness, and of secrets which should be forgotten. I felt disinclined to sit down and wandered about examining the various articles which I had noticed. The first object of my curiosity was a book of medium size lying upon the table and presenting such an antediluvian aspect that I marvelled at beholding it outside a museum or library. 
It was bound in leather with metal fittings, and was in an excellent state of preservation, being altogether an unusual sort of volume to encounter in an abode so lowly. When I opened it to the title page, my wonder grew even greater, for it proved to be nothing less rare than Pigafetta's account of the Congo region, written in Latin from the notes of the sailor Lopez, and printed at Frankfurt in 1598. I had often heard of this work, with its curious illustrations by the brothers de Bry, hence for a moment forgot my uneasiness in my desire to turn the pages before me. The engravings were indeed interesting, drawn wholly from imagination and careless descriptions, and represented Negroes with white skins and Caucasian features. Nor would I have soon closed the book, had not an exceedingly trivial circumstance upset my tired nerves and revived my sensation of disquiet. What annoyed me was merely the persistent way in which the volume tended to fall open of itself at plate 12, which represented in gruesome detail a butcher's shop of the cannibal and Zeke's. I experienced some shame at my susceptibility to so slight a thing, but the drawing nevertheless disturbed me, especially in connection with some adjacent passages descriptive of Anzique gastronomy. I had turned to a neighbouring shelf and was examining its meagre literary contents, an 18th century Bible, a pilgrim's progress of like period, illustrated with grotesque woodcuts and printed by the almanac maker Isaiah Thomas, the rotting bulk of Cotton Mather's Magnalia Christi Americana and a few other books of evidently equal age, when my attention was aroused by the unmistakable sound of walking in the room overhead. At first astonished and startled, considering the lack of response to my recent knocking at the door, I immediately afterward concluded that the walker had just awakened from a sound sleep and listened with less surprise as the footsteps sounded on the creaking stairs. The tread was heavy, yet seemed to contain a curious quality of cautiousness, a quality which I disliked the more because the tread was heavy. When I entered the room, I had shut the door behind me. Now, after a moment of silence, during which the walker may have been inspecting my bicycle in the hall, I heard a fumbling at the latch and saw the panelled portal swing open again. In the doorway stood a person of such singular appearance that I should have exclaimed aloud, but for the restraints of good breeding. Old, white-bearded and ragged, my host possessed a countenance and physique which inspired equal wonder and respect. His height could not have been less than six feet, and despite a general air of age and poverty, he was stout and powerful in proportion. His face, almost hidden by a long beard which grew high on the cheeks, seemed abnormally ruddy and less wrinkled than one might expect, while over a high forehead fell a shock of white hair little thinned by the years. His blue eyes, though a trifle bloodshot, seemed inexplicably keen and burning. But for his horrible unkemptness, the man would have been as distinguished-looking as he was impressive. This unkemptness, however, made him offensive, despite his face and figure. Of what his clothing consisted I could hardly tell, 
for it seemed to me no more than a mass of tatters surmounting a pair of high heavy boots, and his lack of cleanliness surpassed description. The appearance of this man and the instinctive fear he inspired prepared me for something like enmity, so that I almost shuddered through surprise and a sense of uncanny incongruity when he motioned me to a chair and addressed me in a thin, weak voice full of fawning respect and ingratiating hospitality. His speech was very curious, an extreme form of Yankee dialect I had long thought extinct, and I studied it closely as he sat down opposite me for conversation. Catched in the rain, be ye, he greeted. Glad ye was nigh the house and had the sense to come right in. I calculate I was asleep, else I'd a heard ye. I ain't as young as I used to be, and I need a powerful sight o' naps nowadays. Travelin' far? I ain't seed many folks long this route since they took off the Arkham stage. I replied that I was going to Arkham and apologised for my rude entry into his domicile, whereupon he continued, Glad to see ye, young sir. New faces is scarce around here, and I ain't got much to cheer me up these days. Guess you hail from Boston, don't ye? I never been there, but I can tell a town man when I see him. We had one for district schoolmaster in eighty four, but he quit sudden, and no one never heard of him since. <laughs> Here the old man lapsed into a kind of chuckle and made no explanation when I questioned him. He seemed to be in an aboundingly good humour, yet to possess those eccentricities which one might guess from his grooming. For some time he rambled on with an almost feverish geniality when it struck me to ask him how he came by so rare a book as Pigafetta's Regnum Congo. The effect of this volume had not left me and I felt a certain hesitancy in speaking of it, but curiosity overmastered all the vague fears which had steadily accumulated since my first glimpse of the house. To my relief the question did not seem an awkward one, for the old man answered freely and volubly. Oh, that Afriki book! Captain Ebenezer Holt traded me that in 68. Him as was killed in the war. Something about the name of Ebenezer Holt caused me to look up sharply. I had encountered it in my genealogical work, but not in any records since the revolution. I wondered if my host could help me in the task at which I was labouring and resolved to ask him about it later on. He continued, Ebenezer was on a Salem merchantman for years and picked up a sight of queer stuff in every port. He got this in London, I guess. He used to like to buy things at the shops. I was up to his house once on the hill, trading horses when I see this book. I relished the pictures, so he gave it on a swap. Tis a queer book. Here, leave me get on my spectacles. The old man fumbled among his rags, producing a pair of dirty and amazingly antique glasses with small octagonal lenses and steel bows. Donning these, he reached for the volume on the table and turned the pages lovingly. Ebenezer could read a little of this. "'Tis Latin, but I can't.' 
I had two or three schoolmasters read me a bit, and Passon Clark, him they say got drowned in the pond. Can you make anything out in it? I told him that I could, and translated for his benefit a paragraph near the beginning. If I erred, he was not scholar enough to correct me, for he seemed childishly pleased at my English version. His proximity was becoming rather obnoxious, yet I saw no way to escape without offending him. I was amused at the childish fondness of this ignorant old man for the pictures in a book he could not read, and wondered how much better he could read the few books in English which adorned the room. This revelation of simplicity removed much of the ill-defined apprehension I had felt, and I smiled as my host rambled on. Queer how pictures can set a body thinking. Take this in here near the front. Have you ever seen trees like that, with big leaves a-flopping over and down? And them men, they can't be niggers, they do beat all. Kinder like Injuns, I guess, even if they be in Africa. Some of these here critters looks like monkeys, or huff-monkeys and huff-men, but I never heard of nothing like this un. Here he pointed to a fabulous creature of the artist, which one might describe as a sort of dragon with the head of an alligator. But now I'll show ye the best un, over here nigh the middle. The old man's speech grew a trifle thicker, and his eyes assumed a brighter glow, but his fumbling hands, though seemingly clumsier than before, were entirely adequate to their mission. The book fell open, almost of its own accord, and as if from frequent consultation at this place, to the repellent twelfth plate, showing a butcher's shop amongst the antique cannibals. My sense of restlessness returned, though I did not exhibit it. The especially bizarre thing was that the artist had made his Africans look like white men. The limbs and quarters hanging about the walls of the shop were ghastly, while the butcher with his axe was hideously incongruous. But my host seemed to relish the view as much as I disliked it. What do you think of this? he never seen the like hereabouts, eh? When I see this, I tell Eb Holt, that's something to stir you up and make your blood tickle. When I read in scripture about slaying, like the Midianites was slew, I kinder think things, but I ain't got no picture of it. Here a body can see all there is to it. I suppose tis sinful, but ain't we all born and living in sin? That feller being chopped up gives me a tickle every time I look at him. I have to keep looking at him. See where the butcher cut off his feet? Thar's his head on that bench and one arm side of it and t'other arms on the ground side of the meat block. As the man mumbled on in his shocking ecstasy, the expression on his hairy, spectacled face became indescribable, but his voice sank rather than mounted. My own sensations can scarcely be recorded. All the terror I dimly felt before rushed upon me actively and vividly, and I knew that I loathed the ancient and abhorrent creature so near me with an infinite intensity. His madness, 
or at least his partial perversion, seemed beyond dispute. He was almost whispering now, with a huskiness more terrible than a scream, and I trembled as I listened. As I says, tis queer how pictures sets ye thinking. Do you know, young sir, I'm right sot on this one here. After I got the book off Ebb, I used to look at it a lot, especially when I'd heard Passon Clark rant a Sundays in his big wig. Once I tried something funny. Here, young sir, don't get scared. All I done was to look at the picture afore I killed the sheep from market. Killing sheep was kinder more fun after looking at it. The tone of the old man now sank very low, sometimes becoming so faint that his words were hardly audible. I listened to the rain and to the rattling of the bleared small-paned windows and marked a rumbling of approaching thunder quite unusual for the season. Once a terrific flash and peal shook the frail house to its foundations, but the whisperer seemed not to notice. Killing sheep was kind of more fun, but do you know, it wasn't quite satisfying. Queer how a craven gets a hold on ye. As ye love the Almighty, young man, don't tell nobody, but I swear to God, that picture began to make me hungry for victuals I couldn't raise nor buy. Here, sit still, what's ailing ye? I didn't do nothing, only I wondered how twould be if I did. They say meat makes blood and flesh and gives ye new life, so I wondered if twouldn't make a man live longer and longer if twas more the same. But the whisperer never continued. The interruption was not produced by my fright, nor by the rapidly increasing storm amidst whose fury I was presently to open my eyes on a smoky solitude of blackened ruins. It was produced by a very simple, though somewhat unusual, happening. The open book lay flat between us, with the picture staring repulsively upward. As the old man whispered the words, More the same, a tiny splattering impact was heard, and something showed on the yellow paper of the upturned volume. I thought of the rain and of a leaky roof, but rain is not red. On the butcher's shop of the Anzi cannibals, a small red spattering glistened picturesquely, lending vividness to the horror of the engraving. The old man saw it and stopped whispering even before my expression of horror made it necessary, saw it and glanced quickly toward the floor of the room he had left an hour before. I followed his glance and beheld just above us on the loose plaster of the ancient ceiling a large irregular spot of wet crimson which seemed to spread even as I viewed it. I did not shriek or move, but merely shut my eyes. A moment later came the titanic thunderbolt of thunderbolts, blasting that accursed house of unutterable secrets and bringing the oblivion which alone saved my mind.
That was H.P. Lovecraft's The Picture in the House, as read by Graham Dunlop. Graham Dunlop is a software solution architect and voice actor living in Melbourne, Australia. He is the co-editor of the fantasy podcast Podcastle and used to host the YA podcast Cast of Wonders. He occasionally tweets as at Kibitzer on Twitter. Thank you, Graham. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Borgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we dust off the ancient tomes for more Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.